0: Amen. I want to go someplace with you today that Zephaniah wants to take us. So find your way to Zephaniah chapter 3. Uh, and I think to get there, I want to start with a philosophical question. Okay, this is something to ponder. Please don't shout out your answers. Just think about it, okay? Rhetorical question, that's what I mean. Um, what is more important? What we are saved from? Or what we are saved for? What's more important, what we're saved from or what we're saved for? When we think about Christ, uh, when we think about Jesus' death on the cross and the work that he did there, was that work primarily about saving us from sin and death, or was that work primarily about ushering in for us new life with God? What do you think? Don't answer out loud. Maybe another way to frame it is this, Uh, do people need to be convinced that they are sinners bound for hell in need of a savior, or do they need to be convinced that God wants to walk with them and give them new purpose, which is more important? I know what we're all saying uh, because none of us like to be trapped and this feels like the sort of thing a preacher would do is trap you with a question like this. Uh, And I'm sure that you're all thinking the same thing, Jonathan's stupid question, because of course both are important. You cannot pick just one. And you're correct on some level, that is absolutely true. Both are important, and we shouldn't just pick one, right? We should embrace the incredible atoning work of Jesus Christ saving us from sin, uh, freeing us from death. We absolutely should focus on that. And of course, we also should focus on the kingdom of God that is advancing all around us and this God who indwells us with this desire to walk in intimacy and transform us into who we were created to be. Of course, both are important. What I want to suggest to us, though, is that most spiritual traditions and most people are going to gravitate towards one or the other of those. And you may have been raised in a spiritual tradition where being saved from sin was the focus. Or you may have been raised in a spiritual tradition where doing things for the kingdom of God was the focus because we naturally gravitate. And I think most people have a bias as to which they like more and which they tend to focus on. To illustrate, if you've listened to me preach for a while, let's use me as an example. This is dangerous. What do you think my bias is to focus on what we've been saved from or what we've been saved for? That was pretty quick. I feel so known by all of you, thank you. Um, I don't think anyone said from. Did anyone say from? Nobody. Okay, it is obviously what we are saved for. That is what my mind is naturally, my heart is naturally drawn towards. So when we talk about like, hey, let's, we need to follow Jesus, my go-to words are going to be stuff like Jesus inviting us into the adventure, the opportunity, the purpose of God's kingdom because that is my natural bias and I try to be balanced, but I'm always more excited about the opportunity of walking with God and participating in his kingdom than I am about the problem of sin. Right? Just that, That's naturally how I'm oriented. Now, obviously, both are important, like I said. I'm just saying I have a bias in what I suspect is everybody does. Everybody has some sort of bias on this. Some people are going to be drawn to what we've been saved from, and that's going to be what their heart is naturally more attached to. Others are going to be drawn to what we're saved for, and that's what their heart is more naturally attached to. That is why, incidentally, we need each other. One of these should not win in the community of God, right? We need both, right? So whatever your bias, we need to find a way to bring in the other side so that we can have a little bit truer picture of God's purpose in our life. Now, I bring this up because we've been studying the minor prophets, and I had this thought the other day, and I wanted to share it with you. I think the prophets themselves have a bias that you see come out from time to time. And so you study a prophet like Amos, Amos is deeply focused on what we need to be saved from. It's a little harsh at times, but that is where his heart and his mind goes, is look at all these things that you're doing that you need to be saved from, right? You look at a prophet like Micah, might be the other end of the spectrum. Micah is casting this vision about what it means to be the people of God and trying to get us inspired to step into life with God been studying Zephaniah for a few weeks now. I think Zephaniah is actually a little bit better of a balance between those two. When you read the entirety of the book because he talks very clearly about the problems that we have to overcome, but he also is going to have maybe the sweetest and one of like the most compelling pictures of life with God that you will ever read in the scriptures. It's astounding. And so it's both a picture of what we need to be saved from, but it also is a picture of what we are being saved for and what, after all, God wants with us. So find your way to chapter 3. Let's dive in. We uh, have been really focused on the, the hard stuff, the stuff we need to be saved from these last few weeks. Talked about God's anger. Talked about God's judgment. Remember, When we talk about those things, it's very easy for us to take our experiences with other humans and associate those with God, that God is angry like humans are angry. God judges us like we judge each other. That is not true. God isn't human. So we have to understand how those things operate for God. And specifically, it is his love that interprets his anger. It is his love that interprets his judgment. Uh, And that is where Zephaniah is going to try to take us at the end of the, the book, to his love, to God's love. He's talked about judgment and anger. Now he wants us to understand the motive behind those things, which is the deep love of God. But we don't need to forget that stuff we looked at. We don't need to just sweep it away. Like, remember, last week, God was saying, you all were created for so much more than what you've embraced. Like, you've just, you've embraced this complacency and this mediocrity, and I'm I'm not going to let it stand. I want you to step into the more that you were created for. That's the judgment of God. But at the end of this book... He's going to frame the reason for that judgment. And it is this delightful passage about God's love. He's going to give us a picture about what God is hoping would be true of us. What eventually becomes true of us through Jesus Christ. And it's one of the most touching, heartfelt descriptions you will ever read. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 9. Zephaniah writes. This is the Lord speaking. Then... I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. As someone who's drawn to what we're saved for, I love this verse. I love it. This word then, he's referring to the day of the Lord. So he's saying, uh, you know, the judgment of God is on the way that you guys have been managing this thing, but eventually this dream of God is going to win out for you. And on that day, you're no longer going to settle, but you're going to step into what God has called you to. On that day, when God reigns on earth through Christ, this day of the new covenant, that's what he's talking about. And I love how he describes it. He describes it as this day when we're serving together with God shoulder to shoulder. It just gets me excited. Like, the, like this is the day we're living in where God's kingdom purposes animate our lives, give us a reason for getting up in the morning. Whereas a community, we're showing up. Shoulder to shoulder as God's loving presence for struggling families, for orphans, for refugees, for sex slaves, for the poor. That's what he's talking about. These days that we're living in. These days where we don't take advantage of other people to make more money for ourselves, but where we give of our resources to those who do not have as much. Like you all have been doing with the Christmas offering. Zephaniah says that day's coming. And, you know, at Pulpit Rock, this is what we're trying to step into. He continues to describe what will be true on that day. Look at verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me because I'll remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear harm. It's beautiful, isn't it? He's talking about the shift in us. He's talking about taking away our punishment. He's talking about his his people turn from arrogance towards humility and trust. He's talking about how there will be greater honesty There's going to be less fear. He's talking about how his presence will be with us. Then I want you to pay attention to what he says next. Like if you've ever wondered, like, what does God want with me? This is what he wants with you. Verse 16. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp." Verse 17, the Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Stunning, isn't it? To think about the same God who said all the stuff in the first few chapters of Zephaniah. Now in this posture with us. I love how the English Standard Version translates this. Um, The ESV translates verse 17 this way. Listen to this. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's interesting. I like that last phrase. Um, One of the real Bible scholars on our staff is Caitlin Garrett. She uh, was looking at this and she pointed this out to me. She said, isn't it interesting how this God who's rejoicing over us, it says it He quiets us with his love, which is kind of like this picture of like a father with a little baby, like just holding the baby and comforting that baby in a way that almost puts it to sleep because it's so safe in the arms of her father. But then that's juxtaposed by the next phrase, right? Where after we become quiet in his love, he exults over us with loud singing. And this contrast, Caitlin pointed out, between our quietness and his loud singing, like it almost, it makes his love almost like palpable, like startling to us. What a stunning picture of how God feels about you, about me, about us. Let me ask you this, what does that picture do to your heart? Does it do anything to your heart? This idea that God, the mighty warrior who fights for us, who saves us, and it is not a God who reluctantly saves us. That is not his attitude at all. It is a God who saves because it is in his very nature to do so. He is a mighty warrior. That is what he does is he saves and he has saved you. And when he looks at the people, he looks at us, the people that he has saved, he rejoices over us. This is true of our God. There is no heartache in him about the sacrifices that he has had to make. None, because that's what he does. There's just delight and gladness at the object of who he has saved. And he's loving us in this way that brings quietness, and peace of soul to us, where all of our striving, all of our angst, is stilled by the presence of this love. And then, in that quiet moment, he starts singing over us. Like, and not just like humming, but like singing loudly about the love that he has for us. And I want you to notice, he is not singing with us. As Caitlin pointed out, he's purposefully brought you and I to this point of quietness where we're saying nothing, we're totally silent, so that we could hear this loud song from him about how he loves us. This is a solo, right? Not a sing-along. What do you think his voice sounds like? What do you think the lyrics of that song are? What does this picture do to your heart? take you You walk on the fire the flames they will not touch you You are mine You are mine When you walk through the waters I will be with you When you walk through the river overtake you when you walk on the fire the flames they will not touch you you are mine oh you are mine when you walk through the water I will be with you when you walk to the river the way overtake you when you walk on the fire the flames they won't touch you You you're mine oh you're mine you're mine oh you're mine When my boys were younger, I have three boys, when they were younger, uh, we, my wife and I had a routine that we would do every night. After they got in bed, uh, Becky would take a turn, then I would take a turn, I would go into their room, uh, she would go into their room, we would each pray for them, and then we each had a song that we would sing to them. Um, the song that I would sing, I'm not a singer, so it wasn't very good, but I would sing a song called Daddy's Song, which is a song that I heard when I was a kid. Uh, written by an artist, a worship artist named Dennis Jernigan, and it was actually inspired by this verse in Zephaniah. Uh, so every night, go and pray for each of the boys, and then I would sing that song to them. One night uh, when Grant was about, gosh, he four, five, I can picture him, but I'm not, you know, don't totally remember how old he was, but he was about that age. Um, I went in, did the normal routine, prayed for him, told him I loved him, sang this song, which is about a father's love for his son. And when I was done, uh, Grant looked up at me, and I could tell while I was singing that he was thinking about something. Um, And he was always, he still is a very thoughtful guy. um, So I could tell there was something on his mind. And I was sitting on his bed uh, with my arm out there like this, and he reaches over, and he pats me on the arm. He looks up at me, and he goes, Dad, you don't have to sing to me every night. (laughs) (sighs) That's what he said. That was the moment that I realized he might be getting too old to have his dear old dad singing songs to him at night. You know, what's fascinating about children to me is like they grow and they develop and there comes a point in their development where appropriately they stop needing their parents, right? Certainly in the ways that they used to. And that's totally natural. That is totally normal. It is what needs to happen for them to become functioning adults. And as a parent, it is sometimes deeply heartbreaking and feels horrible. But of course, we have to realize it's part of the process, right? Kids have to differentiate from their parents and become their own person as an adult. And eventually, if that happens in healthy ways, then parents and children can reconnect, not as parent and child, but as two adults who love each other and don't have an unhealthy dependence upon one another, right? Right? So all this is kind of going through my mind um, while I'm sitting there on the bed uh, with Grant and I'm thinking to myself, this is growth. Grant is telling me he needs less from me. That is positive, right? It's positive for our kids to grow and to need less from us as parents. But I'm also thinking, like, I don't want to cry. Uh, those days go so fast, don't they? If you're a parent, you know. Those days go so fast. Those days where your child will let you really hold them and quiet them with your love, Uh, where they need that from you. Those days, it's just, it is like over before you know it. Um, And that was the day that I knew it, right? My son Grant is now a 17-year-old man. He needs very different things from me. He does not need his dad to hold him and sing songs to him. I ask. He said, it's a hard pass, Dad. (laughs) He needs different stuff. He needs me to listen to him, to notice him, to affirm how God made him, to give him freedom, to trust him with decisions. Because he's more adult than child, I need to treat him like an adult, and I would make him incredibly uncomfortable if I tried to treat him like a child and hold him and sing to him like I used to. I don't know if you feel this when you read the passage in Zephaniah. Um, I feel this. I, I love it, but it also makes me deeply uncomfortable. Does anyone else feel that? It kind of it infantilizes the people of God. If you're familiar with that word, it's like God is holding us and soothing us and singing over us like we're a baby or like a toddler at best. And part of me, tries to take this verse in, but kind of wants to respond to God the way that Grant responded to me. I mean, I could get, hey, that's sweet, Lord, but I'm 45. <laughs> I'm good. Now, you might not totally relate to those sorts of thoughts. You might have a different reaction, but I, I was thinking about this. Why, like, Why would anybody struggle with such a delightful verse? This is just an observation, but I think it is universally true. Uh, that's a bold statement. I think, I, like, I think this is true of all of us. It is difficult to let ourselves really surrender to the love that God has for us. I don't know, it just, it just is difficult to really take that in. And I wonder if that's why some of us are much more focused on what we have been saved from. We're much more focused on overcoming sin and becoming holy in our lives. And don't get me wrong, obedience and and righteousness, like those are worthy things to pursue, but it's not the same as letting God love you, right? And I wonder if that's why some of us are much more focused on what we've been saved for. And we're all about the mission of God and the kingdom of God, and that excites us to have purpose and something to do. And don't get me wrong, serving God is incredibly important, but it's not the same as being loved by God. And here's a verse that really challenges us to not focus on what we've been saved from and not focus on what we've been saved for, but to really focus on who is doing the saving and why he's saving us because he just really loves us. And maybe that should be the center of our spiritual life, to just sit in his love, let it come like a toddler, like an infant, to just receive the love he has for us for no other reason than he wants us to feel it. He's always wanted us to take it in, to know that it's true, to know this, that the truest thing about us is that we are deeply loved by him, More true than what we accomplish, more true than the sin, is that we are deeply loved by him. And what we see here is that he is not singing over us because he wants us to stop sinning, nor is he singing over us because he wants us to do great things for his kingdom. Like, according to this verse, it seems like he's singing over us because he likes to. He's like that father on the side of the bed. He just likes it. He likes it when you sit in his arms and listen to the ways that he loves you. You know, to recognize this on some level, that's hard for all of us, isn't it? A fabulous author, David Benner, said something that has forever changed me on this. He says this, it's not the fact of being loved unconditionally that is life-changing. It is the risky experience of allowing myself to be loved unconditionally. That's what changes us. Because all of us are loved unconditionally, but not all of us allow that in in some way that transforms our heart from the inside out. That is what God is after with us, is that we would simply allow him to love us. Benner uses a great parenting analogy. He says, imagine there's a child who is loved unconditionally by his father. Now, we know that's impossible. No father loves their children unconditionally on this earth, but God does. So imagine on this earth, there's a father who loves his child unconditionally. But I also want you to imagine that the child is constantly, because of something inside of this child, desperately trying to earn the love of his father. Isn't it true that in that scenario, despite the fact that the child is loved unconditionally, he will never be able to know the unconditional love of his father because of his constant efforts to earn it? Because he's efforting so hard, it doesn't matter that his father does love him without conditioning, because when he works so hard for his father, and then he experiences love from his father, he actually attaches it to his efforts, and it affirms the sick story inside of him. And the same thing is probably true when he fails his father, and in his shame, he pushes his father away. And then feels distance from his father that further affirms what he believes to be true, that it is his efforts. So in that scenario, what must the child do to experience the unconditional love of his father? He must do one thing, right? Cease striving. He must do nothing for a change. He must rest. He must stop efforting and allow himself to take in the love that his Father has for him without condition. Isn't this us on some level? Isn't this why I kind of want to pat God's arm and say, All right, this is our dilemma. You know, the journey of letting God love you is different for all of us. It's all sorts of things that he has to unmake in us so that we can finally take it in. But for each of us, this truth never goes away. It is not the fact, because it is a fact, that we are loved unconditionally that changes us. The question will always be, will we settle enough to allow his love in? Will we cease striving? Will we cease efforting? and allow ourselves to take in this love. His love for you is real. It is perfect. It is without condition. It is unchanging. When the God who created you pictures your face, a smile comes to his face, is what Zephaniah is telling us. You make him want to sing is what Zephaniah is telling us. Let me ask you a personal question. How are you doing in allowing God to love you? How are you doing in allowing God to love you? Here's my application for today. How do we apply this verse? I would apply it this way. Stop trying so hard. Stop trying so hard. It is the only way that you will really know that you're loved. Isn't that ironic? Stop trying so hard. I'd also apply it this way. Let yourself rest for a moment like a child in the arms of your father. I know you're not a child. And I also know, just like me, you never outgrow the need for that. I'd apply it this way. Allow yourself to listen to a song of love for us. This is not a song he sings to make you sin less. It's not why he's singing it. It's not a song that he sings to help you accomplish more for his kingdom. It's not why he sings it. He just, he's singing it because he just wants to. And when, you, when he sings to you, don't be the kid who pats the arm of God and says, This is all right. You know, I got it. Let me deal with this sin stuff. Let me accomplish more for you. Just stop and take it in. Allow God's love to be the center of your life. Don't make your spiritual life about your obedience. Make it about his love for you. Don't make your spiritual life about your service. Make it about his love for you. And when his love for you becomes the center of your spiritual life, all of that other stuff will follow. God is love. And what that means is that's where it all begins for us, his love. On some level, what it also means is that is where it ends long after we are gone with his love. His unconditional love. It is the truest thing about us. How are you doing in allowing yourself to experience it? Here's what it is, and then we'll worship. The Lord God Almighty, God of all creation, he is with us. He is a mighty warrior who loves saving us. And when that mighty warrior God thinks of us, he knows it all, and he feels nothing but joy and gladness about us. He longs to hold us together in his loving embrace until we finally cease striving and efforting, until we are quiet and still at rest in his love so that we can hear his song. We make him sing, not hum, Not sing under his breath, but his love for us makes him sing a loud and joyful song. And it is enough to just take it in. It is real. It is the realest thing about us. You are loved.